Welcome to the Melbourne Business School podcast channel. I'm Jan Marshall from Melbourne Business School and with me today is my colleague and Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at Melbourne Business School, Dr Carol Gill. Carol is also a registered psychologist and today we're talking about authenticity and how to become an authentic leader in the workplace. We'll also be exploring what role our personality plays and the practices we can all adopt to become more mindful of ourselves and the people we work with. And to start us off, Carol, what is the authentic leader and why should we aspire to be one? Authentic leaders are self-aware and they're able to communicate effectively with their followers. So there's really four components. One is they are self-aware. The second is that they are transparent. So if I gave an example of that, uh, I might say I'm going to do something um, and I'm transparent about communicating that to the people who are my followers, uh, wherever they be in the organisation. Another one is actually behavioural integrity. So I walk my talk. So what I say is what I actually follow through on. And another one is balanced processing before making decisions. So I'm prepared to listen to a range of different views before I make a decision. Followers will identify with authentic leaders. They will be more likely to do what the authentic leader says they should do. Uh, which is a good thing if, if the leader is ethical. And it has a positive impact on work groups as well. And more recently, some research we've been doing indicates it will have a positive impact on HR processes, making them much more effective. And how do we get to be authentic? That sounds like a funny question because in its question, it sounds like you know there's a level of inauthenticity. But what, what might we do to uh, engage with uh, a more authentic process or way of being? That's an interesting one because authenticity to a certain extent is a bit of a moving target, isn't it? We're consistently evolving and growing. Certainly, you know, being mindful of who we are, being self-aware will certainly get us in touch with who we are and what we're thinking at a particular point in time. And staying mindful and self-aware is important as we continually change and grow as, as human beings as well. So that's the, the first thing. Certainly the, the techniques of communicating with others, the balanced processing, being transparent and open is something that, that leaders can become aware of uh, on a training program here. So we would, we, we would talk about those things, we would practice those things and people tend to buy into the concept and decide that it's something they want to do and also get the tools to be able to roll that out. And perhaps rather paradoxically, can we be too authentic? Can we go too far with this concept? Yeah, for sure. And you've, you've identified something that's very important there. It's not so much that we could be too authentic, but it's the way in which we communicate our authenticity. I like to say to students, say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it meanly. Remember, if you're authentic, you will be held accountable by people who, who hear your authenticity. So. If you take a position, you will be held accountable for that. And if you fall short, if you don't explain it carefully to people, you will be less trusted than someone who is inauthentic. Um, so the trick of it is to have the skill, if you like, to communicate your authenticity effectively in a world that is complex and constantly changing. If you're an authentic leader, you will be engaging in balanced processing. So you will be asking questions uh, from your followers and you will be listening to the responses uh, that they make and how they tell you what's going on. And you will build a trusting relationship. 
to an extent that you create a, a context where people will say what they think. Carol, we've been talking about the authentic leader and the effectiveness of the practice of authentic leadership in organisations. What can you tell us about the relationship between authentic leadership and uh, human resource management? I understand you've been doing some research in this area. Yes, it's actually quite recent. Um, Firstly, we know leaders are important to the rollout of HRM practices. In fact, they are the face of HRM for many employees. Um, and things like performance review or performance management processes are actually, um, it's not about the forms, is it? It's really about the way it comes across uh, to the employee about how effectively it, it's going on. And we, we're making the argument, and it's a very valid one, I think, that if uh, we have authentic leaders and organisations, those practices will be rolled out more effectively, more transparently, and in a way that employees will respond much more effectively to. So how might that be different from what people are practicing today? You mentioned that it's not about the forms. It sounds like it's in the conversation. Yeah, um, uh, there's a lot of presentations on the new way to do performance management systems. Um, and I, I, I watched that debate with some interest. But really, it is about the conversations that, and the frequency of those conversations and the quality of those conversations that a leader is having with the their people. At the moment, we might find, like when I was in HR, a manager would say, we need to get rid of this person. They're not very effective. And I'd look at the report and they would have had a satisfactory performance management rating because it was all just too hard to communicate the truth to a particular employee and give them op the opportunity to make some changes. If we have authentic leaders who are transparent and engage in balanced processing and who are self-aware and walk their talk, th these sort of leaders will actually be very skillful in delivering performance development interviews, performance management interviews effectively, and also building on employees' strengths as well. And just the very act of a leader behaving in this way will tend to encourage other managers in an organisation to follow, to mirror, to um, emulate the behaviour they're seeing in the authentic leader. Well, that's the thing about leadership. They have an impact in two ways. The, what they do uh, is very important, um, but it's also this uh, followers will mirror if you like, the role model that they're set. So if, if you have a majority of authentic leaders in your organisation, the performance management process will be rolled out more effectively. But others will see that and they will emulate what's being done. From what you're saying, behaviour plays a critical role in being an authentic leader. But does personality play into that in relation to our behaviour at work? Well, what perhaps people don't realise is that the link between personality and behaviour can be tenuous depending on the situation. The stronger the situation, the less of a strong link it has. So whilst personality preferences are important to deciding what you're going to do, um, you'll behave however you need to behave uh, to meet the requirements of the job you're actually doing. So you mentioned the idea of a strong situation that may change what your personality preference is and how you behave. What's, what's a strong situation? So a strong situation um, will never change a personality preference. You're actually born with that. Okay. Uh, so well, you're born with half of it and then it develops early in life and, and basically that's who you, you're probably going to, um, 
to be in terms of personality. Um, a strong situation is a situation where you identify strongly and you need to, you know, you need to adapt to suit that situation. And usually a job is a strong situation. You know, you're getting paid, you have to perform. So you're going to do what it takes usually, or you're going to leave. Well, when you say tenuous, we may be seeing people act out of character when you hear that expression or doing something differently. Well, kind of in a positive way. Um, so people will do what they need to do to get the job done. Uh, so if they're an introvert and they end up um, having to run meetings all day, they'll run those meetings. But there might be some consequences for that individual. Uh, they might be more stressed. They might even leave the job because it's not a good fit with their particular strengths. Will they do the job as well as somebody with a different personality preference? Well, quite possibly, maybe not at first, but eventually you may not be able to distinguish an extrovert from an introvert in the workplace. What's, what's some ideas around that? What would you suggest to people? For example, if I am uh, somewhat introverted and I need to perhaps be extroverted to run a meeting, how can I manage myself in that situation? So there's things you can do and there's things that your leader or mentor or coach can do as well. So if we look at what you can do uh, in a situation like that, well, the first thing is to recognise what your preferences are, how you're feeling about the job you're about to do and the task. Um, so, and, and to set an intention, a decision that you'll make to actually do what you need to do because you know it's consistent with your values or goals or what, what's required. Once you've done that, you need to exercise that behavioral muscle. Um, so you need to make a decision that you will call a meeting. You need to make a decision to lead at that meeting and speak out at that meeting. Once the decision is made, then you just have to cope with your reaction. Certainly other work I've been doing on mindfulness is a way that people can manage the stress as it comes up in real time. The other thing I mentioned is your, your leader can help you coach, coach you through it. Um, uh, you know, certainly our cognitions and the way we think uh, has a lot to do with, with what we do and how we do it. And if people can build the confidence, uh, a leader might say to a subordinate as they're coaching, they might skill them up, that's important, to feel competent and that you can do it. Um, but secondly, they might talk them up. You know, when have you done this before? You know, when have you put yourself out there and succeeded? And remind the person to be balanced about the, the way they're thinking about what they need to do. You mentioned mindfulness then. What, what do we do to be mindful to help ourselves in those situations? Right, so firstly is awareness. So you have to be aware that your heart rate might be going up, uh, that your breathing is getting shallower. They're usually signs of being under uh, some stress. Um, and once you recognize those things, you need to not try to push them away because that can actually make them stronger. So there are various techniques that you can use to diffuse from those. Um, and so it might be about taking several deep breaths. It might be a mindful technique of making room for that and then bringing your attention back to the task at hand. So it's the awareness and then the attention management that is, makes up mindfulness. You also mentioned self-awareness and people being more well aware of their personalities. Can you suggest some ways that we might become more aware of who we are and uh, what our personality is yes. telling us? 
Well, of course, awareness can come internally or external sources. So one way to become aware is to reflect on what you're thinking and feeling. And um, strangely enough, we're often quite divorced from that in today's world. Another way is to use a journaling process to actually really just try and extract what, what is going on for me right now. Am I enjoying this? Do I like it? Um, you can start to do even with eating a meal. You can say, do I like this food I'm eating? Uh, so there are things that you can do. The other thing is you can get feedback from others, but you've got to get feedback from many people, not just one person, because we do change in each situation. We change in reaction to the social situation we're in. So we might in fact be quite different people to different people to different people. So get the feedback and then make some judgments about, well, who am I? And, and recognize that you, you might be uh, operating very differently in different situations and that might be appropriate or not. So as I go back into the workplace today, what's something I could do differently, you know, amongst the things you, you have just suggested that might help me to uh, consider or change my behavior at work or improve things for me? Right. Well, um, certainly set, set an intention or a goal. We sometimes talk about smart goals, but goals, what do you want to change? And sometimes that requires some investigation uh, of what's going on for you and what other people are telling you or go and ask people about that. So once you've actually decided what you want to change, the second thing is to realize that you can do whatever you want, right? It's just going to cause you some stress. And also you're going to have to skill up. So don't actually be put off necessarily by the thought that it's not me. I mean, it's useful information to think that, but it's not the end of the world. And then thirdly, once you've decided that you have a, the competence and uh, ability to change and you want to change, um, then it's about having a mindful practice that allows you to implement that in real time. And also some other strategies, maybe getting a coach or a mentor or a peer that you can work with. Thanks, Carol, and we'll pause now for a short break. We'll be back in a few seconds. To those chosen to come here and to the organisations they represent, congratulations and welcome. You're making a clear announcement that you want to do more, achieve more and be more. While you're with us, you'll be among the best, learning from the best. You'll leave changed, and then be called upon to lead change. So to you we say, welcome to Melbourne Business School. Welcome to the world class. Welcome back, and today we've been talking a bit about personality and bringing self-awareness to our behavior, which is intrinsically linked to the personalities we were all born with. But there is also a very well-known metric that can measure our personality, the MBTI or Myers-Briggs Type Inventory. Carol, can you tell us a bit about the MBTI? MBTI is a personality type instrument, not a trait instrument. So that means basically we put people in boxes. So and that has its pros and its cons. Certainly anything that provides a framework for us to understand more about ourselves is really important. It builds self-awareness. It perhaps gives us some ideas on how to move forward. Like when we're stressed, we perhaps know why we're stressed a bit more. And we know ways we can start to deal with that. We know why we avoid certain tasks at work. We know how to actually develop our teams, 
how to even configure our teams to have a holistic and um, comprehensive response for the organisation. Um, I don't think anybody ever gets an MBTI report and they go, oh, you know, this is awful. Uh, most people recognise their strengths in that and have areas for development that they're comfortable to accept. So people are very responsive to the MBTI. So that's the advantages of the instrument. Can the MBTI predict behaviour? Now, all personality uh, preferences, no matter how they're measured, have a significant but often slight impact on behaviour, depending on the strength of situation. So in other words, at home, maybe personality have a big impact. At work, less so, um, but it depends again in a, in a meeting of friends at work, uh, a stronger impact in a more formal business meeting, a lesser impact. Carol, I'm also aware that the MBTI stirs up some controversy in some circles and not everybody is a fan. Can you tell us a bit why that's the case? Well, I'd never use it in my research, I have to admit. And why wouldn't I? Because it's not the most reliable instrument that we have available. But if you don't take it uh, as seriously, it's a good tool. And in fact, in general, personality should not be held too tightly. We should not be necessarily boxing people up because the link between personality and behaviour can be quite small in strong situations. And I do use it, which is interesting because I've got access to a lot of different um, instruments that I could use. I use it because I think it is good for personal development. I do think um, that students can um, understand it and use it in a practical way um, almost immediately. And, but I always teach it in a cautionary and nuanced way. I say the framework's good, there's nothing wrong with the framework. Um, and in fact, that's the same with any instruments that self-report. You've put the data in to that. Uh, and so you make what you like out of what comes out of it. It's just a structuring what you've given it. But I can hear you sort of use, saying, use it lightly, just use it as a starting point. Would that be right? Yeah, use it as a way of understanding yourself and also developing empathy for others. But I'd like to think that students walk out of my class on individual difference, just being motivated to ask different questions, uh, just having a framework that guides those questions and also being more prepared to look in and realise that other people could be different and beginning their journey of self-awareness, I would, I would imagine. Yes, that's right. Self-awareness and leadership, you know, their capacity to influence others more effectively. So we've talked about the MBTI being used in development situations. Is there any other scenarios where you can use it or perhaps be cautious about using it? Well, it certainly should never be used for recruitment. And even if you did use it, it wouldn't be particularly valuable. Um, so it's important to do, not to do that. I wouldn't go around making little labels or lapel badges for people um, in terms of personality because people can have varying strengths of preferences. So even though I might be an ESTJ, for instance, I might have slight preferences and a slight preference can easily switch over to the other type, which is in fact the opposite at any point. We can learn a lot about our personality by doing an MBTI test, although we should use it lightly. But we can also get a deeper understanding of ourselves through mindfulness as well. I've been reading a lot about mindfulness as it applies to the workplace, and I'm curious to know about what it all means and perhaps some of the background. What can you tell us about it, Carol? Well, um, from a secular perspective, mindfulness is about awareness and attention. 
So awareness is being aware of what's happening inside your body and inside your mind, and also about what's happening in the environment that you're in. Um, and the attention aspect is this enhanced ability to be able to put your attention where you want it to go. Um, so we don't push anything away, but we can shine a light on things that are valuable to us and take that light away from things that aren't serving us. So it sounds to me like, you know, we can spend our day allowing our attention to be taken by whatever comes up or whatever is in front of us. Uh, and it really does take a little bit of practice and exercise to guide our attention to the places that we would find it most fruitful. It sure does. And as you can imagine, if you can actually have some enhanced ability to manage your attention um, that is going to be spectacular in so many ways so all those ruminations that you get involved with uh, maybe a meeting that didn't go well and you have a tape playing in your head about what you should have done differently well the first time it's probably valuable the fifth time you're now taking up cognitive space that could be used much better elsewhere so in that situation, what, what would I do? How do I, you know, I recognise that I'm reviewing that meeting over and over. What's a, a mindful way of moving on from mm. that? Well, the first thing is what you just said. You recognise that you're playing a tape in your head over and over. Uh, and some people don't know that. In fact, it just is unconscious and, and they're just driven by that. They're driven maybe to the bottle or, you, you know, or to act out and, you know, kick the dog overnight when you go home. And and things like that. So the first thing is recognize that that's going on. The second thing is about not pushing it away. Pushing it away will make it worse. Um, so you recognize that you're even perhaps giving your attention for a little while. It's almost like an unwelcome guest that if you pay some attention to it, it suddenly stops creating a rocket and lets you get on with serving the other guests in your house. So that's the second thing to do. And then thirdly, there are diffusion techniques that we can put in place. So a simple diffusion technique would be, I'm having the thought that I should have done a better job. Just inserting I'm having the thought actually creates a little bit of distance that will allow you to put your attention elsewhere. And what are some of the advantages of using mindfulness techniques? Uh, how do they help us Apart from perhaps that scenario, did they help us in other ways? I have the pleasure of reading a lot of research on mindfulness and it is very motivational. It can be anything from changing your brain structure to minimizing dementia and all sorts of amazing things like that. Um, but really the positives are for the workplace is that you will be able to manage stress much better, become much more resilient, uh, that you can actually put your attention to those jobs you keep procrastinating on. Uh, that, I use it a lot. I write some research articles and I use mindfulness to allow me to put intense attention into something that would drive me to do anything but. We can cultivate mindfulness through everyday activities. You can eat a meal mindfully. You can exercise mindfully. Um, so uh, there's no issues there. You can also develop mindfulness muscles through meditation. So uh, that meditation is focused awareness in the present moment on something. So I can do a two minute meditation of lunchtime where I just focus on my breath and I pay attention to what else comes up but keep bringing my attention back to my breath. Um, or you could even go in for 50, 60 minute, three hour meditations or retreats if you want to.
meditation um, is great. And I mean, some people will meditate for hours each day. And, and so meditation is building those mindfulness muscles, uh, if you like. And so I, I would highly recommend that. But it's not for everyone. And if it's not for, for you, if meditation doesn't work for you, um, you certainly can develop mindfulness in many other ways. Get an app, for instance, an application for your iPhone. Do a practice in 15 minutes. In fact, after a while, you may need to practice less and less because it's integrated into your day and you're practicing all day, every day. Thank you, Carol, for sharing your insights today and how we can be more in tune with our behaviours in the workplace and adopt authentic leadership and mindfulness practices. For more on leadership and organisational behaviour, visit our website at mbs.edu.